Last week, <clears throat> we looked at uh, the year, or year and a half, depends on which commentary you look at, uh, between verses 11 and 12. There was a time period uh, here in Matthew chapter 4 between verses 11 and 12 that took up a period of about a year to a year and a half. Um, and also one of the, the subjects that we spoke of last time is about how God sometimes has to make things really uncomfortable for us before we'll ever leave our present situation. Sometimes he's got to move us in a way that would be unexpected, that would be painful even. You know, it also reminds me of how sometimes when we start a ministry, sometimes when we begin, and, and, and listen, when I say in a ministry, that as believers, every place we go should be our ministry. It should be our ministry field. Uh, those people that we come in contact with on a daily basis should be uh, those that we are trying to disciple. I've often said I've been doing this line of work that I do for almost 30 years now, and I've had a lot of people come through and sit in the passenger seat of my truck and have been ministered to for the time that they were there. I've seen a lot of people get saved. I've seen a lot of people rededicate their lives. I've seen a lot of people who just strengthen their, their walk with God. And so I, I believe that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, that that is your ministry. And so when I speak of the ministry, don't think I'm talking about just pastors and, and preachers and evangelists and all those. I'm talking about all believers in that ministry. And so with that thought in mind, Sometimes when we start in a new ministry or we start in a new position, very early in that, some great tragedy or some great problem or some great hurt will happen that at the time feels like it could sink that ship. It could sink that opportunity that we have before us. You see, Yeshua and John the Baptist ministry had overlapped at this time. During that year period that we see between 11 and 12, John the Baptist and Jesus both were out. Now, Jesus had no intentions of overriding John the Baptist's ministry at this time. And so they kind of, and, and the scripture tells us that, that as Jesus went out and began to minister, that they began to baptize more than John, and they began to bring in more disciples than John. But Jesus was on a timetable, and he's, he was waiting for that opportunity when he would be commissioned and brought into full ministry. And that time would not take place until John was gone and out of the picture. And so we saw Jesus last week as he took his ministry into Nazareth, his hometown. I mean, that made sense. when he, After he had left his presence and John had commissioned him the three times as he left uh, from the Jordan, that he would go up to Nazareth. That just makes sense. That's where he was from. That's where his family was. That's where his friends were. That's where he was raised. And so you would think that that is where he would go and he would make his headquarters there. But, you see, that was where he was comfortable I've said many times over the years that God rarely calls us to comfortable. Sometimes, but rarely does he call us to comfortable. So, 
If we remember last week as we talked, Yeshua had read out of Isaiah. He got up in the synagogue and he had read before the people and he told them. He said, listen, I've, I've come to minister to the broken. I've come to minister to the lost. I've come to minister to the dying. He said, I've come to minister to the Gentiles. And then he declared that I am the Messiah that Isaiah speaks of. And the more the people that were gathered around, the more they heard him speak, the more they began to think, wait a minute. We know this guy. We know his parents. We know his brothers and sisters. We know where he lived. We know the work he did. And he's going to claim to be the Messiah? And the more they thought about it and the more they got worked up, they got a hold of and they began to drag him out of town to throw him off of a bluff because he had claimed to be God. And as they got out there, it says that Jesus was able to walk through the midst of them and they had no idea where he went. He, by some supernatural miracle, Jesus walked through the crowd and they were unable to touch him. But the thing about it was is now that his, his headquarters of, in Nazareth was done, he couldn't be there anymore. He had to move out of Nazareth because he had lost everything that he had there. And so now he's moved. And he had to move his ministry headquarters from Nazareth to Capernaum. Now, sometimes Jehovah allows adversity and pain early in our ministry to prepare us for the ministry that lies before us. I was thinking about this. And, you know, it's hard for me to believe that um, 15 years ago, our church that I was attending had gone to two services. The crowd had gotten big enough, and they had begun to do two services. And so I would go to the early service, and I had a lot of friends that attended Skyline Full Gospel. And so I came out here to be a, just visit, to be a part of the service. And um, the morning that I had showed up for the service, um, when the service was over, and I had brought my guitar with me and, and, uh, so I could join in with their music service. And as I was getting ready to leave, it began to pour down rain. I mean, just buckets, just pouring. And so I didn't want to get my guitar wet, so I, I come over and I sat down in a pew right over in this area over there, and I was just sitting there waiting for the rain to calm down and the pastor at the time who was a, a good friend of mine had asked everybody to kind of come in and, and join in and, and he just told him he said listen I, I can't do this anymore he said my secular job is affecting my ability to pastor he said it's just it's too much he said and I feel like the church is suffering because of my inability to to do both positions and the church, and there was just a few people there at that time, and they began to try to talk him out of it, and they began to speak to him, and, and I, was just, I was just a bystander. I wasn't a part of the church. This was probably only one of a couple of times I'd ever even been here, and I, and I just I felt compelled, and I said, listen, can I say something to you? And I said, see, this is, I said, for the past couple of years, you've trusted him as your shepherd. You've trusted him to be your spiritual guide. 
And I said, and now he's telling you that he's unable to continue in that position. I said, you've trusted him this far. Why wouldn't you trust him in this? I said, don't you feel that he's probably wept and cried and fasted over this to make this decision? This wasn't an easy decision. It's never an easy decision for a pastor to leave a church. And so with that said, I had went to my pastor and I, I asked him if I could come out and, and be a part and help them out until they found another pastor. And so I would go to the early service at our church and then I would come out here and, and help with song service and, and on occasions they would have me preach when they were unable to find a, a preacher to come in. And um, to make a long story short, I, I did that for a couple of months when they asked me to be their pastor. And uh, we prayed about it. And, and I, I, you know, I'm going to be honest. This tiny little country church was never on my radar. Never on my radar. Um, I, you know, I was young. I'd gone to college. I had my my license in a minister, and I, I just, I knew, uh, you know, like I said, number one, it was a small country church with, with little to no uh, hope of ever becoming anything but a small country church, and um, I just always thought that one day I would pastor a church that would be able to support me and my family, and that I could be a full-time minister, and, um, and number two, it was not an Assembly of God church. I was an Assembly of God minister. I, I was licensed to the Assembly of God. And so it just, it kind of took me off guard whenever they had asked me to pastor. And, and, and I prayed about it, and I just thought, you know, I love the people. I mean, most of them were my friends, and, and I just felt like it would be a good opportunity, a growing experience for me to, to, you know, maybe it was better I learned to pastor a small church before I pastored a big church. And so we agreed to be a part of it. And so 15 years ago, we became the pastors of Skyline Full Gospel. 15 years ago. It's hard to believe that's 15 years ago. And, you know, as I look back, I can see how God has prepared me. There was just certain things that, that I, I can look back now and I can see that, that fit me in this church. You know, number one, I never really liked praise and worship music. I just... It was never my thing when our church began to do praise and worship. I just always had a heart for hymns, always had a heart for hymns. As you know, hence, that's what we, that's all we do here. Um, and so I see, I see that God gave me that passion for, for the hymns. I loved verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, teaching and preaching of the word of God, which is what this church was always a part of and always had as a part of their agenda and so we fit like a glove I mean we fit it, it was like when we come in it was like a perfect fit but the thing about it was just a couple of years into my our pastorate we had a major conflict young pastor just a couple of years in and I mean we had a major conflict and I was forced to make a stand on what I knew God's will was. I knew, I knew beyond this, to, still to this day, I know what we did was right. I know that. It, there was never a question of what we were supposed to do. And so 
I either, I had a couple of choices. I could either resign and, and let it play out on its own, or I could stand on it and they could possibly fire me as their pastor. And so I made a stand. And I told my wife, I, I told her, I said, this may be our last weekend here. This may be our last weekend as pastors at this church. I said, but I have to stand on what I know God's will is. I have to stand on that. And I said, and if they fire me at the next service, and I'll be honest with you, uh, there would be times after that took place that we would pull in at the church and I'd see a, a group of the men standing out and I would think to my mind, well, this is it. They're going to ask me not to come back. That happened several times. I mean, I just, I, and, and so we took that stand. And, but I refused to back down. I refused to quit because I knew what it, whether it was popular or not, I refused to back down. And when I took my stand, three or four families left the church. That don't sound like a lot, but for a church this size, it was a major split. I mean, we lost half of our church when all of this took over, when all this took place. In one Sunday, we lost half of our church. And the thing was, it was the very ones that I had come to visit the original Sunday that I came here. They were the ones that left. The ones that I loved, the ones that had been my friends, the very ones who asked me to pastor were now looking for a new pastor at another church. The ones that I loved and I pastored now hated my guts for a stand that I took. And I have to say, I, I've probably never been more hurt or devastated than I was when all of that took place. And it was a snowball effect. It wasn't just that I lost the, the families that I lost here at the church, but those families tied into friends who were angry at me because I had done, done their, their buddies and their families and their friends so dirty. And, you know, that was probably 12 or 13 years ago when that happened. And, and since then, of all those people, and I tried to make men's. I did. I tried to, to mend fences. I tried to, because I didn't, I wasn't angry with them. I didn't hate them. I was just, I was just terribly hurt. And, and in those 13 years, I've had one of them, out of all of them that left, I had one come up and apologize and ask me, ask me to forgive them for anything that they had done. And I did. I, I've, I've forgiven all of them. And, you know, a lot of things have happened since that. A lot of things have happened in, in 15 years. But since that time in the past 13 years, a lot of things. But nothing as boat rocking as that was. Nothing. We've had many families come and go over the years. But nothing as dramatic as the split. We've had disagreements. I've taken moral stands, but nothing as traumatic as the split. Not even COVID rocked this little church as hard as the split did. And you know, sometimes 
when we take a moral stand. I'm telling you, sometimes when you take a moral stand, all hell will be unleashed on you. All hell will come against you when you take that stand. But don't you dare back down. Don't you dare back down. You may lose friends. You may lose families. You may lose jobs. But don't you dare lose your integrity. And you stand on the word of God. Matthew chapter 4. And that's what we're going to see today. Matthew chapter 4. Starting with verse 12. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zebulun and Nephthalim, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephthalim, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and the shadow of death, light is sprung up. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so John was cast into prison. You know why John was cast into prison? Because he took a moral stand. He took a moral stand and it cost him his freedom. And you know, this is very interesting to me. This is one of those things that in my study, I got it. And, and I'm going to share something with you. Um, and I almost guarantee you that none of this is going to make sense to you. But at the end, it'll make sense to you. Luke chapter 3, verse 19 and 20 says, But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things that he had done, Herod added this to them all, and he locked John up in prison. So it says the reason that John went to prison is because he rebuked Herod for the things that he was doing in his life. Now, first off, we need to understand that there were many Herods. There were many Herods. Herods was kind of a title like Caesar or Pharaoh. So there were many Herods. So we just need to understand which Herod this are. And it says Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Tetrarch is just a word that means one-fourth. So what it says is he was Herod, the ruler of one-fourth of something, to be honest, which makes no sense to me because we're only going to look at three areas right here. But maybe somebody can explain that later. Um, so it says he was the ruler of one-fourth of something. He was the Herod of one-fourth of something. Now, his name was Antipas. So Herod Antipas threw John into prison. Now, do you realize how thrilled the Pharisees and the Sadducees must have been when John was thrown into prison? They hated this guy. 
I mean, every time they showed up, he was calling them out. Every time they showed up, he was pointing out what hypocrites they were. They hated this guy, but they wouldn't do anything to him because they knew the people loved him. And so Herod Antipas, he didn't give a rip what the people think, right? He didn't care what happened. So when he was rebuked by John the Baptist, he threw him into prison. You know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a party. They absolutely loved it. And so Herod Antipas was appointed by his father. Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great had been appointed by Rome as king of Israel. Now, Herod the Great was dying, and he knew he was dying. So he began to split up the territory because he wanted his sons to rule in this area. And so... Archelaus was given the south, down in Judea and Samaria, down in the southern area. Philip, the tetrarch, took the north. And I would tell you the names, but I couldn't pronounce them, so I'm not even going to try. And then Herod the Antipas was given the middle part, the part of Galilee. And so, this is where it gets crazy. This is where John had his problem with Herod. Now, the Herod the Great had a gaggle of wives. Look up gaggle, it's hilarious. <laughs> and he had children with all of these wives. And all of these children began to intermarry with each other. All of these half-brothers and half-sisters began to marry each other. It was so bad that their family tree looked like a telephone pole. Just saying. So Antipas had a half-brother by the name of Philip. Not Philip, the, 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 uh, uh, the ruler that was over the north. This is a different Philip. Now, this Philip was a rotten kid. He had been rejected by Herod the Great. He didn't want anything to do with him. So he was not given any power. He was not given any authority. He was just a very wealthy citizen that lived in Rome. Now, he had a nasty, immoral, evil wife. And her name was Herodias. I'm telling you, she was nasty. Now... She was Philip's niece, as well as his wife. This is a part of all this marriage nonsense that's going on. So Philip married his half-brother's daughter. Now, Herod Antipas went to visit his half-brother Philip in Rome. And while he was visiting his half-brother Philip in Rome, he seduced his sister-in-law niece and convinced her to leave Philip and to marry Antipas. Yeah, this is awesome, isn't it? <laughs> 
So he seduced his brother's niece wife. He seduced his brother's wife, his sister-in-law, his other half-brother's daughter, his father's granddaughter, his own niece. What a mess. What a mess. So he convinced his brother's wife niece to divorce his half-brother and to marry him. So Herod, so Herod Antipas committed adultery, incest, broke up his half-brother's marriage to his niece. And for some reason, John the Baptist had a problem with that. Really, believe it or not. And see, this is the thing. As bold as John was. Now, remember, John was bold. I mean, he told it like it, like it was. He didn't pull any punches. I mean, he told Herod what he thought about it. And so Herod, Antipas, threw him in prison for it. And eventually, Herodias, Antipas's niece wife, sent her daughter Salome, Antipas's stepdaughter, great-niece, into dance seductively for her great-uncle stepdad. Kind of sounds like we're in Arkansas, don't it? <laughs> Sorry. Wait, did I say that out loud? <laughs> and this was the thing. After his great-niece was done dancing for him, he offered her anything up to half his kingdom that she wanted. And what she wanted was John the Baptist's head on a platter. She thought, surely, if we silence this man, that the guilt will go away. But what they didn't understand was, when one voice is silenced, another rises. And that one is Yeshua. The Christ, the Messiah. And so, it is a dangerous thing to make a moral, godly stand. It can be a very dangerous thing. Especially when the powerful are involved. And listen, we need more Christians who are willing to take a moral stand. No matter what the cost is, we need more Christians to take a stand. We prayed for our godly leaders this morning, and we need them to take a stand no matter what it costs them. If it costs them their political career, then so be it. At least they can lay their head down at night and know that they kept their, their integrity. At least they knew they stand upon God's word. <laughs> and you know what? No matter what I thought was going to happen when I had to make my moral stand here at this church, death was never a part of that thought. I never worried that somebody was going to kill me out here because I was taking a moral stand. And yet that was a real 
problem for John the Baptist. And eventually it cost him his life. John Knox was once standing for his principle against Queen Mary. He was standing confronting Queen Mary and she said to him after taking all the things that he had rebuked her for, she said to him, do you think it is right that the authority of your monarch be resisted? And his answer was, and I quote, if princes exceed their bounds, madam, they may be resisted and even deposed. You see, John the Baptist had that kind of courage. Whatever the cost, whatever had to happen, he took a stand upon morals. It's always a dangerous thing to stand against a system. Verse 12 says, Now when John had heard, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulon and Nephthalim. Listen, one of the questions that came up as I was studying was, did Jesus leave because he was afraid of Herod? I thought, who would think that? Yeshua did not flee into Galilee. He departed into Galilee. And besides that, Antipas was head over Galilee, so if he was fleeing from Herod, he run to the wrong place. Remember, Herod was the ruler of Galilee. You see, Jesus was avoiding any premature confrontation. He did that often. There were times that he would separate himself from a situation because it wasn't time. The time was not then. And John's imprisonment was Yeshua's sign to start his ministry in full force. That was the sign that he was waiting for. John was now out of the picture. John was, was thrown into prison. And so Jesus was now released into his full ministry. And you know, this is the thing. As you look at this, I want you to notice that he moved away from the most religious areas. He didn't go to Judea. He didn't go to Jerusalem. He went to Galilee. He didn't go hang out with the religious. He went into Galilee. Why? Well, first off, they were less sophisticated they were less religious and more likely to accept what he had to present. And he specifically went to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum means the village of Nahum, which some say it might have either been named after the prophet Nahum, uh, but Nahum also means compassion, so it could literally be the, the village of compassion. Now, at this time, it was a very flourishing route. There was a lot of trade, and so it, it was, a, it was a, a metropolis. It was a big city at that time, a lot of people there. As a matter of fact, that's where Matthew, the one writing this book, had set up his 
office, his tax office there. I find it interesting that Jesus come into town to try to win people over, and he brings in the most hated man in town. Everybody hated the tax collectors. <laughs> that is not the way that you, that you make friends. But listen, whether or not Capernaum was really the village of compassion is probably debatable. Listen to what Jesus prophesied over the city. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 23 and 24, he says, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to heaven? No, you will be brought down to hell. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that I will be more that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. He said, don't you understand that if, if, if Sodom would have received just a portion of the miracles that I performed before you, they would have repented, they would have changed, they would have accepted it. And you've had me all of this time, and you have rejected everything I've done. He said, I'm telling you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than you on the day of judgment. Village of compassion. <laughs> Verse 14 says, That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, which says this, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Yeshua is that glory. It will be filled with the glory. You see, originally God had given this region of Galilee to the tribes of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. But against Jehovah's command, Zebulun and Naphtali did not drive out all of the Canaanites from the land. And what happened was, the Jews mixed marriages, which created pagan worship, pagan traditions. And so it had changed so much to the way of the Gentiles that it was then called Galilee of the Gentiles. And you know, this was just another reason why many of the Jews rejected Yeshua. The reason they rejected Jesus is because he went to Galilee. What prophet of God would move their ministry to Galilee? Of course any prophet of God would go to Jerusalem or to Judea. Never would they go into a Gentile nation. John 7, 41 says, Others were saying... This is the Christ. But others were saying, surely the Christ is not coming from Galilee, is he? Surely he is not coming from Galilee, the land of the Gentiles. 
And when Nicodemus tried to convince the Pharisees to give Jesus a fair chance, remember Nicodemus, he's the one that came to Jesus at night and said, what must I do? You must be born again. Can an old man be born again? This is Nicodemus. So he's trying to convince the Pharisees to give Jesus a, a fair chance. And listen to this exchange. It happens in John chapter 7, verse 50 and through 52. And Nicodemus, the one who came to him before being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge the person unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And they answered and they said to him, You are not a Galilee as well, are you? Examine the scriptures and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own home. Nicodemus says, give him a chance. Listen to what he says. And they says, are you kidding me? He's in Galilee. Look at the scripture. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that a prophet ever rises out of Galilee. And so they rejected him. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Dustin, could you do me a favor? Could you shut the lights off? Yeah, just right back there, right behind you there, buddy. The one with three there. That's it. Yep, just slap them down. There you go. Those who sat in darkness. Why do you sit in darkness? You sit in darkness. How long would you have to sit here before half of you was asleep? Not long. If I told you half of you was asleep already, would you believe me? <laughs> How long? Why do you sit in dark? You sit in darkness because you're comfortable, right? You sit in darkness because you have no reason or no desire to get up and to turn the lights on. People sit in the darkness because they're comfortable. So let me ask you this. When you bring the word of God out and you open the word, what happens? It's painful, ain't it? Right? Isn't that uncomfortable? Man, that light's bright. Man, you ought to see your faces. <laughs> but see, that's the point. Do you ever wonder why when, when you as a representative of, of God comes in and, and you come before unbelievers that they become hostile towards you? Because you come in with a light and it's, un it's uncomfortable. I'm telling you, when you, they sit in darkness because they're comfortable there. You see, this is the verdict, John 3, 19. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. When you come before the people as a representative of Jesus Christ, you bring a light that is uncomfortable to them. Man, I can remember 
back when my, man, my dad was so hostile towards me. I could be, one day we were sitting there watching TV and he looked at me and he said, you think you're so much better than me. Dad, where did that come from? And I left that day and I said, man, God is dealing with his heart. God is dealing with that man's heart. And I am just a symbol of what's dealing, the life that is uncomfortable to him. As I come around him and he sees the life and what my life has become, he, be, he feels guilty for the life that he lives. And it would cause this hostility and this hate that would rise up within him. I knew he didn't hate me. I knew he didn't hate me. But it hurt. The light that I shone upon him hurt. It caused discomfort and pain. And then it says that from that time, from that time, that was the start. You'll only see that phrase one more time in Scripture, and that speaks of when his time is coming to an end. From that time, he began to preach. To preach, to proclaim certainties. You know, there's a difference. When we come in on Sunday school on a Sunday morning or, or Sunday night when we have a Bible study, or on a Wednesday night when we have our Bible studies, we have discussions, we talk, we compare, we read, we look at commentaries, we look at different translations. We do all of these things and we do these comparisons. But it's different when somebody stands up to preach a certainty. It's different when somebody has prayed and God has given them the word and they sit and they study for hours upon hours upon hours and they pray and they pray that God will reveal to them in a way that they can present to the people that are sitting before them to understand to the point that it changes their lives. It's different. And it says Jesus went to preach unto the people. John Wolfgang von Goethe says, Don't give us your doubts, give us your certainties, for we have doubts enough of our own. Don't stand up and tell me of your doubts. Tell me of your certainties. Tell me what you're sure of. Tell me what you know without a doubt is true. Because I've got my own doubts. I don't need yours. I've got enough to carry me on to the end of my life. I don't need yours. And this is the powerful thing. And we're going to close with this. As with all good preachers, Yeshua preached what the Father gave him. He preached what the Father gave him. Listen to what John Chapter 12, what he said in 1249. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. He said, everything I've preached came from the Father. I only spoke what he told me to say. But listen, this is the thing. Today, I speak with certainty when I tell you this. You stand for what is right. 
Don't you ever back down on your morals. Don't you ever back down because you never want, they can take everything from you but your integrity. And that's up to you. You stand for what's right. If it costs you your job, then God will provide another job. If it costs you a church, then God will provide another church. If it costs you a friend, then God will provide another friend. You stand on water's right. Don't you dare back down. And I'm telling you, we're living in a time right now that you have ample opportunities to back down. You have ample, I mean, it is, it is popular now to back down. It is popular now to go with the populace. You're evil. You're evil if you try to say a man is a man and a woman is a woman. You're evil if you try to convince somebody that it's not all right to let a woman kill her child. You're evil. You're evil if you call a he a he and a she a she. You're evil. Don't you dare back down. Would you stand to your feet? Quickest way to find out who fell asleep is to stand everybody up. <laughs> if somebody beside you is still sitting there, shake them. <laughs> Father, what a powerful word you've given us today. And God, I, I believe I stand before a group of people who take a stand on a daily basis, God. God, we are not concerned about being popular. I'm not concerned about what people think about me because, God, I know that the world out there rises up for everything I stand upon, rises against everything I stand upon. And, God, all I pray for is courage and integrity. If it hurts, God, let us stand upon the morals of your teachings. Because if we don't, Father, if we lose our integrity, nothing else matters. If we lose a right relationship with you, all of the relationships in this world will always fall short. God, I pray that you pour out your courage upon these people today. And whether it's at work, an employee or an employer, Father, that tries and finds great pleasure and causing trouble and pain in your life. Help us to stand. And now as we conclude this service, I pray your blessings be poured out upon your children today. May their cups overflow as they leave this house. And we ask all these things in Yeshua's very precious name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.